This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honestly the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portsale. My name is Andrew Carroll. And today we are discussing the career of the very capable Riley Kyo. Andrew, run down our history. Let's talk about Riley Kyo. Let's talk about Fury Road. <laughs> Riley Kyo was born in 1989 in Santa Monica, California, to musicians Danny Kyo and Lisa Marie Presley. She is the granddaughter of Priscilla Presley and Elvis Presley, essentially making her Hollywood royalty. At 15, Kyo began modelling for brands such as Dolce & Gabbana and Christian Dior. In 2010, she made her film debut alongside Dakota Fanning and Kristen Stewart in The Runaways. She followed this with the horror films Jack and Diane and Kiss of the Damned, as well as a small role in Steven Soderbergh's Magic Mike. Her first mainstream role was in George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road, on which she met her husband, Ben Smith-Peterson, a stuntman. In 2016... Kyo's breakthrough came in Steven Soderbergh's TV series The Girlfriend Experience, based on his film of the same name, which uh, starred porn star Sasha Gray, just to, you know, differentiate the levels of talent. I've really never seen that the movie, but I've seen the TV show. The TV show's great. Oh, okay. I hear the TV show is good. Uh, I hear the movie is also good, but it's, like, very austere. Yeah. Like, more about the financial crash than it is about being a call girl. It's more of an experimental movie. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, Riley Kyo has often portrayed complex, traumatised young women in the later 2010s, such as in It Comes at Night. Hold the Dark, The Lodge, and The Devil All the Time. Kyo has often taken the harder route and seeking out more difficult, challenging roles in films. She has worked with Steven Soderbergh in several times, most recently in Logan Lucky, and has appeared in Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built and David Robert Mitchell's Under the Silver Lake. Yeah, um, I, I was when you mentioned Christian Dior, I was thinking of, you know, Christian Dior, damn, they don't make him like this anymore. <laughs> Bit of Kanye West there for yeah. you. Um, yeah, I adore... That's how relevant the brand is now. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. The 15-year-old song. <laughs> I adore Riley Kyo. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, comes from entertainment royalty, Elvis Presley's granddaughter. And um, I think in her brief forays into mainstream cinema with supporting roles in things like Mad Max Fury Road and Logan Lucky, she just seems like such a born star. Like, she's mm-hmm. so beautiful and charismatic. But I, I think what's really fascinating about her is that just based on her filmography and the directors she's worked with, she seems very selective about the mm. projects she's involved in, in that, like, it's mostly really cool indie stuff. And I feel like people like Robert Pattinson or Christian Stewart or Stephen Young recently have gotten a lot of praise for sort of avoiding bigger, more mainstream movies in favor of being part of more daring, smaller films, which give them a better chance to show off their skills and try new things and I would argue Kyo has done that throughout her entire career Yeah, yeah. and um, I, th- I think I think of her presence in a movie as being a bit of a you know stamp of quality and um, I think she's like a really fearless actress because like her characters in Hold the Dark The Devil All the Time The Lodge are very dark and yeah. complex characters her character in Zola is appalling <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know the character she plays in like the girlfriend experience you know the adaptation of the Soderbergh movie like she goes through a lot in that show and re- that character required Kyo to be very vulnerable on screen and she rightly earned a Golden Globe nomination for a performance in it so but yeah I'm a really big fan of hers and uh, but it was your idea to focus mm-hmm. on her um, do you mention an ad before we get into Mad her Max Fury Road filmography baby <laughs> she's kind of the heart of that movie do you yeah. want to start with that yeah sure yeah so in Mad Max Fury Road uh, Riley Keough plays Capable, one of five of the tyrannical Immortan Joes, played by Hugh Keysburn, RIP, treasured wives. Aided by Imperator Furiosa, played by Shirley Theron, the wives escape Immortan Joe's citadel, picking up Mad Max Ma- Rokotansky, played by Tom Hardy, and Warboy Nux, played by Nicholas Holt, in their Hell for Leather race to freedom. What are you doing here? He saw it. He saw it all. My own blood bag driving the rig they killed her. 
The gates were open to me. What gates? I was awaited in Valhalla. They were calling my name. I should be walking with the immortal, no feasting with the heroes of all time. I'd say it was your manifest destiny not to. So she's pretty well named in this film, along with um, Toast the Knowing, played by <laughs> Zoe Kravitz, one of the other wives. Capable is by far the most capable of the, of the five wives the wives aren't fighters like Furiosa and Max they're soft as a result of years of isolation and a traumatic time in captivity by a warlord and a skull faced army but they have like a hardened internal core because of this and that it kind of allows them to externalise that as the film goes on you know they become more rebellious and more active rather than passive as uh, the film goes on when they're taking the fight back to Immortan Joe and his large adult son Rictus Erectus I love Nath, the names of Jones. Yeah, it's so, so good. good. Yeah. And in a film whose world has little time for romance or sentimentality, Capable still manages to find it with Nooks, the cancer stricken half life war boy who only wants to be loved. And uh, it's like it's this really beautiful, almost Shakespearean through line in a film kind of dominated by oil and chrome, fire and thunder and blood and bone. And um it's also a miracle that this movie was made, let alone came out and was incredibly successful at the critically, commercially and awards wise as well. And I would say it's like single handedly responsible for changing like several people's opinions, including our very own Steven Soderbergh, uh, on both the world and filmmaking. If you've ever read his like little spiel on Mad Max Fury Road, it's insane. I haven't read it. I'll it's really, really good. I oh. have it written down here to say Steven Soderbergh quote, but I don't have it ready right now, so people will have to seek it out for themselves. Oh, it's actually a great time they were talking about it because isn't there the book is being released by? Um, it's written by Kyle Buchanan, and it's like an in-depth look at the the making of Mad Max Fury Road. And apparently, it's like amazing. Okay, cool. Yeah, um, I can't remember where. Uh, yeah, I think I read um, an article. I think it might have been by him. That was like a you know an oral history, one of those kind of things. Yeah, um, yeah. And like the shoot was like grueling and it was like 18 months and like there was a lot of kind of onset tension because people really not that they I, I won't say that they didn't understand George Miller's vision but I think it's kind of hard to put together in your head like the man's a genius for sure yeah it, it, to put this kind of thing together and um, and then when the film came out I think even the cast were kind of awestruck by what uh, kind of happened like I don't remember watching a press conference and uh, Tom Hardy being like, you know, I didn't understand at the time, George, but I do now. And thanks. <laughs> yeah, and I'm hoping now that we know that, that George Miller could do that. Because I mm. imagine they're coming to it being like, yeah, we're making this long-awaited sequel to this sort of cult apocalyptic sci-fi and didn't really think of it as being like as massive a blockbuster as it would become and like yeah. an Oscar nominee and like one of the most incredibly like just made movies of the last like 20 years. Yeah, I'm hoping that now that they know that, Furiosa will have a, a faster development to the screen. Fingers crossed, yeah. 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 yeah, the man is like close to 80, I think. Like, can't keep doing this forever. For sure. Well, yeah, but um, And it's one of those film series I just want to see keep going and going and going, to be honest. Yeah. It's such a sparse movie, Mad Max Fury Road. And I do remember, on top of just how great Shirley's mm-hmm. Tron is as Furiosa, that Nooks and Capable are very cute. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's got the Rihanna red hair as well. Yeah. Um, and the goggles. <laughs> um, and. 
I think it says a lot that none of the performances are showier than they need to be, as none of the core group actually enjoy what they do in Mad Max Fury Road. Because like, there's no grim satisfaction in like a cool kill or like a well-timed escape uh, in in the movie. There's only survival because for Mad Max uh, Furiosa and Nooks and the Wives, that's all that exists exists, which makes this kind of tragic, wonderfully understated romance all the more special. I think, mm. and um, yeah, I think it says a lot that they that George Miller made an action movie. Um, because from what I remember, the Mad Max, the first Mad Max is pretty hardcore in that it's like, oh, yeah, his wife and child are killed. Mm. And then he just goes on a fucking rampage after these guys. And uh, Mad Max 2 also ends like not ends, but like it doesn't go so well for Mad Max either because he's I think he ends up getting shot in the, at the end of it. Like he, he survives now, but a lot of people die in that movie. And I think Mad Max Fury, it really just for such a fun and enjoyable movie as it is, it really gets across how horrible the apocalypse would be in this iteration yeah yeah just the fact that nooks is like what a lovely day yeah it looks like hell hell on earth (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. Um, as he's racing into like the nuclear atomic sandstorm pumping brake fluid and gasoline into his car yeah unbelievable do you have a theory on um or an opinion on what's better the color version or the black and white version because i think you need that color I think so too. No, I've seen both in the cinema. Same, uh, I've yeah. seen the black and white one more recently, and I think I've never seen fire look so good in a film. Mm. You know? Yeah, because I, I get why, why the idea is to put it into black and white because it does make it seem more like industrial. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah. it's such like a silent movie essentially. Yeah, but um, I do think like that that sandstorm is like stunning. Yeah, in yeah. Color, you know? It's like what's that Bong Joon Ho quote where he's like, uh, "What what's like a f- moment in the film you cried at?" And he's like, "The sandstorm in Mad Max Fury Road." <laughs> it's like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We we move on to another favorite of ours, uh, Logan Lucky. Absolutely, I only watched it recently. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, do, do you want to take the pop for this? Sure. Yeah. Riley Keough plays Melly Logan, younger sister to Jimmy, played by Channing Tatum, and Clyde Logan, played by Adam Driver, and a member of their team that plans to rob the Charlotte Motor Speedway during the Coca Cola 500, the busiest racing day of the year in North Carolina. There's clothes for you both in the bag, and Clyde, I put something special in there for you. Thanks, Mel. You're going pretty fast. Well, we got a lot of road to cover, so yeah, there will be speeding. Gunning for a hundred in a neon blue car that probably ain't even on the market yet? Don't you think you're asking for to be pulled over? Sunday on a holiday weekend. Police department hit by budget cuts. There's only one musker patrolling the whole highway for the next 40 miles. But that's still one musker. It's been handled. Millie, I'm about to get naked back here. I said no bacon. I said no bacon. Would you give me my arm, please? Is it this one? (laughs) So ends our focus on uh, Soderbergh heist movies after three episodes. Yeah, yeah, sad. Yeah. yeah, it's weird that that happened. It is. We yeah, three. Yeah. We're just so hyped for Kimmy coming out in a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Well, we had. It is strange because we had um, Vincent Cassell and Don Cheadle planned before we took our Christmas break. Yeah. In like the start of December, even, and uh, then it, that Riley Keough comes along, and it all just dovetails so out. nicely. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, I reviewed Logan Lucky for Headstuff when it came out in 2017. And I gave it a pretty. I looked it up. Bound to Google. Review <laughs> all the Twitters and all. Um, <laughs> uh, watching the movie again in preparation for this, um, I love it even more. And like, on one level, the movie is so entertaining as just like a funnier, scrappier, less glamorous twist yeah. on the heist genre, particularly Soderbergh's own kind of Ocean's trilogy. You know, like because Ocean's Eleven is, you know, everyone's so suave and perfectly dressed, and they're. 
they're experts at their craft as mm. they knock over this casino. But whereas in Logan Lucky, the heroes are these like ordinary working class down on their look people. And the movie begins with like, you know, Chang Tatum being laid off at yeah. work over just kind of bureaucracy. Like it's not even his fault or anything like that. And, you know, he's divorced, but he seems like a great father. And then you have like Adam Driver playing Clyde, Jimmy's brother, who lost his arm serving in Iraq. Mm. He lost it like being driven on the way to the <laughs> airport to leave Iraq. And, you know. He stepped forward and others are stepping back. Yeah, and the area they seem in seems so poor. Mm. You know, they don't even have clean water because of some sort of dark waters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. chemical yeah. leak. Yeah, and like it's led to like Clyde literally believing that the family is cursed. <laughs> <laughs> so you really sympathize with the pair of them as they carry out what's ultimately revealed to be kind of like a victimless crime. Yeah, yeah. Say, to better their lives. And um, just the heist is so fun, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. Because um, they do that great thing where like, it shows you a bunch of scenes in isolation that are just funny and dynamically staged you know like Adam Driver nonchalantly driving a car through a convenience <laughs> store um, so that he can get arrested uh. to break Joe Bang aka played by Daniel Craig out of jail uh, really fun Craig just having such a good time not being Bond yeah you can feel his enthusiasm getting to be the character actor that he was before Bond no beacon in Logan Lucky and in Knives Out both yeah. doing kind of the same accent. Yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but all the stuff like the gang like diverting the pipes that he to get the money around the venue, the scenes with the insects and the cake, mm. you know, the jelly bean bomb, the prison riot. You have all this stuff that's so entertaining to watch in the moment. But it's only at the end of the movie you fully understand how they all piece together yeah. and the grand plot's so satisfying when it's revealed. So it's just one level, great heist movie. But I think on this deeper level, it's like an incredibly kind movie. Absolutely. Yeah, my first point is like you would be hard pressed to find a more wholesome and warm heist film. Yeah, because Jimmy and Clyde are so sympathetic and Craig is so lovable mm. I love the bit at the end where like Roddy Kill's character is talking to Joe Bang about the family curse and if it's real and she's like do you believe we're destined to repeat the past and he's like no I'm all about the future <laughs> so good but um, I think we talked about this with Mark Conroy when we chatted about Dark Waters in the Bill yeah. Camp episode but like it's so often you see people from the American South be depicted in movies in a, a negative light as yeah. if they're all dumb yeah. and racist and you know, obviously white nationalism does exist in some communities there which is awful but it's rare you see white working class characters in the South which where there is like a lot of rampant poverty yeah. you know be portrayed in the empathetic way it is in Logan Lucky like there's a real feeling in this movie of all these characters that are screwed over by the man looking out for each other yeah I think which is best exemplified by that wonderful montage at the end or you know spoilers you know Jimmy and Clyde sharing the money they got from the heist both with just the, like the people tangentially involved in it you know like mm-hmm. the poor woman in the bank his car they had to um, wreck as yeah. part of the heist or Joe Bang's uh, black fellow inmate who kept the warden distracted you know yeah. type like the warden hysterical Dwight Yoakam yeah <laughs> <laughs> all that stuff is great the Game of Thrones I'm stuff. reading it from the Wikipedia page on the computer <laughs> just the beat of there are no blank in this prison. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Every time it comes up. Also helping their community. You know, mm. like the Catherine Waterston, you know, the character runs the mobile health clinic, you know, like that. Even she benefits. You yeah. Know? And um, yeah, both times I've seen this movie when Jimmy goes to see his daughter's beauty pageants and she decides not to perform Rihanna's Umbrella but yeah. performs a song very close to his heart. Yeah. Both times it made me cry. Yeah, same here. I've seen this movie maybe five times now and it makes me well up every time. Uh, what do you think of Kyo in the movie? I think she's great. Well, you know, like her character Melly is a hairdresser, and like all West Virginians, is very proud of her work, her state, and herself. And as well, she should be because not only is she a great hairdresser, she's also well equipped to handle a heist and give her older brothers a kick in the ass when they need it. She's a wonderful part of the ensemble. I think she's really great. If I had one flaw with the movie, I do wish there was a bit more of her in the early sections. 
because we're mainly shown the heist being planned by Clyde and Jimmy. Melly's not present yeah. for a lot of those scenes. We mostly see her whenever she's needed to complete a task in the yeah. heist. I kind of wish she was more a part of it. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? That's how I do think the character is great and Kill's performance is really excellent because, like, first of all, Southern accent, mm. great. She's obviously Elvis. A lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of her scenes with Clyde and Jimmy, you know, is her helping them out and giving them advice, sort of filling a maternal role mm. for the brothers as, you know, as their parents have died. And in a lesser movie, that could be boring or kind of reductive because, like, she's a woman, yeah. you know, like, she's like, has to be like, boys, you better be careful. And I don't know. I think the movie and Kyo do a good job making her character feel more charismatic and cooler than yeah. that. And takes time to show that while she may be more intelligent or lucky as the brothers uh, yeah. say than the rest of her family she's definitely cut from the same cloth as them because, yeah like, yeah she's got some of that Logan volatility for to sure her. you know and like it could be easy for her just to be like a scolding character or like a pill but like she's never that like there's that bit that I love <laughs> where before the heist where she asks Jimmy as she's like painting the cockroaches used in the heist have you thought about having a backup plan or what we're gonna do the first time shit happens let alone the second time which is good advice mm. and Jimmy is like kind of brushes her aside and is like, why don't you let me worry about that? And she's like, okay. She just reacts in like a nonchalant yeah, way yeah. because like it was enough for her just to say it. You know, she's yeah, not his mom. Yeah, you know, yeah, she's yeah. a person who's doing her own stuff. You know, she's an adult. And um, I also think there's like a real like unspoken love that she has for her brothers. Mm. You know, like there's, yeah, there's the bit where she picks up Joe and Clyde when they break out of jail and she's like, there's clothes in the bag and I put something special in there for you, Clyde. And he sees it says like the arm, yeah. the prosthetic arm. Prosthetic arm, yeah. Adam Driver's Clyde looks around and gets kind of emotional. He's like, thanks, Mel. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. Anytime Adam Driver says anything in this movie makes Great. me laugh or cry. <laughs> Did you just say cauliflower? <laughs> The biggest character detail that Kyo has in the movie is that, like, she loves cars, mm. particularly fast cars. Like, she's always rattling off info about cars and roads. And she's got this nice little plot line involving Jimmy's ex-wife's new husband. Moody. Moody, played by David Denham, who's a great character actor. Recently was Kate Winslet's ex-husband in Mare of Easttown. Oh. And, um, yeah, he's this car dealer who's always kind of talking down to Melly. You know, there's the bit where he comes over to her and is condescendingly trying to get her to sell her old car while bragging about the vehicle he has. And I think it's a Mustang. And Melly doesn't rise to it or get flustered. And she just says kind of coolly, like, oh, yeah, I noticed you got the uh, V6. I was surprised you, you know, didn't get the V8. It's faster. But then I remembered, you know, you can't drive stick. And immediately he's like, I can drive stick. I can drive stick. I love stick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Forgot about that yeah. one. Yeah. I love stick. And like, she just starts, like, giggling and walks away. <laughs> and then she ends up stealing the car yeah. to use as part of the heist. But she's got, like, great comic timing, you know? Mm. And um, it's that great bit that's... It's, it's in all the trailers for the movie where Joe Bang is, you know, about to get changed out of his prison gear and says to Melly, like, I'm about to get naked back here, so no peeking. And she's like, ugh. Yeah. And then immediately shoots a look <laughs> in the rearview mirror. And, um, I said no peeking. And I think, like, good acting is sort of, like, filling in gaps that might be in scripts and adding some more dimensions. And I, I do think Kyo not only makes her character a little more fun than it may mm. read, but also just in that look she shoots Joe Bang and they're seen together at the end of the bar... I sort of unbelievably think they'd be a great couple. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. kind of do ship them at the end of the movie, you know? <laughs> even though we've never seen them like kiss or mm. really talk much to each other the whole movie. Yeah, know? yeah. Yeah, no, I had Logan Lucky, the best. Yeah. So good. Is Kovai going to Under the Silver Lake? Go for it. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus, how to describe the plot of Under the Silver Lake? <laughs> best of luck, man. <laughs> yeah. Basically, Andrew Garfield plays Sam, this um, person in his early 30s, who's an aimless slacker type living in LA and his mononymous existence of reading comics, uh, playing mm. video games and spying on his neighbours is broken when he meets Sarah, one of his neighbours who's played by Roddy Kyo. And um, they spend this uh, one sort of magical night together. However, um, when she disappears the next day, basically without a trace, he becomes obsessed with finding out what happened to her. And in kind of inherent vice as fashion, 
Ooh. This his investigation leads him in various weird directions. Like he stumbles upon multiple hidden messages in pop culture, particularly a song by hot new band Jesus and the Brides of Dracula, um, a fictional band created for the movie that have a song that's like incredible. I've been listening to it for the last like weeks. <laughs> since I've seen the movie. Also, he comes across a group of struggling indie starlets who moonlight as sex workers and an <laughs> underground comic um, dealing we- with weird LA legends, including one about the owl's kiss, a naked woman in an owl's mask who seduces and kills people in their sleep. Also, as Sam investigates, LA is rocked by a spate of dog killings and the mysterious death of a billionaire, all things which may or may not have uh, something to do with Sarah's disappearance. Hello. Hi. Oh, look at that, Coca-Cola. This nice man bought you a treat. (laughs) Can you say thank you? (laughs) That his name, Coca-Cola? Yep. Dependable as sunshine. Is that a Coke slogan? Yeah. An old one, I think. My great-grandma used to say it. She was a pretty smart lady. What kind of dog do you have? Oh, um... My dog died recently. Oh. I'm so sorry. Thanks. Well, it was nice meeting you. Yeah. Yeah, nice to meet you. Um, do you want to come in for a minute, have a drink? Jesus Christ! Do you, you know any of us? That I've never seen it. Weird? No, no, um, I, I don't know. I know. I know more about <laughs> Under the Silver Lake now than I did <laughs> yeah. two minutes ago. Yeah, this is was you know writer director David Robert Mitchell's highly anticipated follow up to It Follows. I think a movie both of us really like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I think I was just disappointed he wasn't making another another, another horror, horror film. So sure. I was like, oh, I'll give this one a pass or yeah. wait. It's it's a streamlined movie mm. if you want to catch up. But um, it was a bit of a flop financially and um, really polarized critics Under the Silver Lake uh, at the time. But I think it's gone on to have a real cult following. Cards on the table. When I first watched this, I didn't like it. I admired a lot of its craft. It's a gorgeous looking movie, but I thought it was a bit overlong and kind of self-indulgent with hadn't had some problematic elements. Rewatching it for this, I might be the biggest U-turn I've ever made on the movie. I actually really <laughs> loved it. Um, to me, this movie feels like it was written by a smart but not fully matured male college student or young man in both a good and a bad way. Yeah. And I will say, like, apparently that's not completely true as Mitchell is 47 now. And I saw in an interview oh, he, wow. he did promoting it that he... He wrote it between his first movie and It Follows. Right. And it was like he worked on it. Like he had written a script for another project that became a bit too conventional for his liking. And he wanted to just do something where he could be a bit more free. Mm. And when It Follows made like 20 times back its budget and got great reviews, he actually got to make it. You know mm. what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of his blank check. Yeah. It's got this kind of like, I don't know, young man energy. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. Like in terms of its positives, I really admire how ambitious and weird it is. It's about all at once, like, disillusionment with uh, modern life, the strangeness of Hollywood, class, conspiracy theories. And uh, I love how just nakedly it feels like David Robert Mitchell being like, I love Hollywood lore. I love music. I love codes. I love detective stories. I'm just going to find a way to smush them all into, mm. you know, one project. And it's, it's really well crafted. The cinematography is beautiful. The score by Disaster Piece, who did score for It Follows, and is great. And so is the soundtrack. And uh, the cast are just uniformly excellent. All people who are just when they're about to pop are yeah. in the movie, you know. But the but then again, like you know, the script is a bit messy and unwieldy. Not in the sense that it's weird for weirdness' sakes. But I'm sure if you kind of asked Mitchell the reasons he included certain details, he would have good reasons to have them in the movie. But there's just a lot 
You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And like it's 140 minutes. Yeah. And yeah. Um, in terms of those themes I mentioned, like they're not subtext. They're like explicitly text to the extent that like Topher Grace plays Sam's friend in the movie who has just a handful of scenes where he basically just exists to lay out some like thesis statements for the yeah. movie. You know, he's like, it's an entire generation of men obsessed with video games, secret codes, space aliens. Used to be a hundred years ago, you know, any moron could kind of wander into the woods and look behind a rock or some shit and discover some cool new thing. Not anymore. Where's the mystery that makes everything worthwhile? We crave mystery because there's none left. <gasps> you know, all this yeah, stuff, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. conversations like that. And um, yeah, it's, as I said, 140 minutes long and it's a bit masturbatory. But metaphorically and literally is there's an extended scene where Garfield Sam hits a wall during his investigation and yeah. to chill out, he just lays out all his evidence and clues and uh, jerks off for it. <laughs> and it leads him to make a break in the case, which, I don't know, feels like something a college student might write. You're like, oh, masturbation was the key. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, and it should be said, like, there's a lot of, like, incredibly gorgeous women in scantily clad clothing who are depicted instantly just disrobing or throwing themselves at Sam, despite him often being kind of creepy and mm. kind of a jerk. And that kind of annoyed me on a first watch. On a second, it felt more like it was commenting on how Hollywood exploits young women, but, like, the movie's definitely trying to have its cake and eat it, too. Yeah, yeah. But it does get brownie points, at least, for showing some male nudity to kind of balance it out. Woohoo! Yeah, you know. Yeah. And Kyo's part of the movie is small, but very pivotal. Her first of only really two big scenes is her character Sarah and Sam hanging out in her flat, and she's styled, like, very iconic, like a Hollywood ingenue. You know, she's dressed in all white and this summer dress and wide-brimmed hat, and... She begins to seem very giggly and sweet, if kind of also flirty and seductive. And she's sort of playing like, I guess, like a man's fantasy mm. of, a, of a woman. You yeah. know what I mean? And she calls out Sam for spying on her, but seems like weirdly chill and like open about it. And she's like, want to get stoned? And, you know, it cuts the, the pair lying on their bed watching How to Marry a Millionaire, the Marilyn Monroe movie. And they're talking, become more intimate with each other, you know, getting closer or... And Garfield and Kyo have really good chemistry in the scene. They do that thing where their like lips get very close to each other, but they don't kiss for what feels like an eternity. Mm. And like it works because it builds real like anticipation for the kiss. But then her roommates enter the house, and at that point she he's like, you know, want to go to a bar? You know, get out of here. And she suddenly changed, and I was like, she probably called a night. <laughs> and her character before had been so open, and she suddenly she just like shuts down. And there's a sense that like a bad thought or like a worry has just like suddenly preoccupied her mind. And they go outside and they see fireworks and. She just kind of becomes like oddly entranced by them and he's like talking to her and she's just not listening. Yeah. And, you know, like she's having some sort of profound reaction and then um, she just kind of brushes him off for a night, like just says, thanks, bye. And, you know, doesn't give him any of the warmth she was displaying before. And like it's, it's a really well-played scene because like it gives you the charisma to kind of fall in love with the character while at the same time you know, making her interesting, like there's just something boiling under the surface yeah. that we, under the surface of the silver, like, <gasps> um, that we don't know about and, you know, want to find out about. And because the movie is very loose and shaggy, I think it's important that that scene works because, like, I don't think we'd care enough to stick around if we weren't interested in what happened to Sarah. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? And then after that, she's sort of like a specter throughout the movie. We see her in dreams that Sam has. There's the one that's in all the trailers of Kyo naked in the swimming pool doing this sort of like old Hollywood style routine of trying to get out of it while covering up her yeah. private parts. You know? yeah. And um, it's actually interesting as it's almost an exact recreation of a scene from a Marilyn Monroe movie that was never completed due to her unexpected death. And Monroe, She's dead? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, Monroe seems to be sort of like the vibe Kyo is trying to emulate in the mm. movie, you know, like, and is very charismatic doing so. Um, but because Under the Silver Lake is so weird, the scene ends with her suddenly barking like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but like, she remains a presence throughout the movie. Sam's always like showing pictures of Sarah to people. And she does have one big scene at the end that bookends the picture. And 
like I won't spoil the mystery of what happened to Sarah, but I will give a warning though that like the ina- the explanation for what happened to her is batshit crazy. Right. And I think I might have taken against the movie as well the first time I watched it because I may have been trying to solve it or you know, wanting um, a more satisfying resolution to the mystery. And uh, what you get in the movie is so left field, no one would have ever been able to predict it. But like watching it again on movie, you know, I, I did find it worked well and kind of fitted with the themes of the movie on a, on a second watch. Yeah. Yeah, but like essentially the last scene between Sam and Sarah is a video call and like the circumstances around it are very crazy. Yet Kyo does manage to ground it in some kind of, you know, oddly human and profound emotion. Like she plays a mix of just being kind of glad and flattered that Sam cared so much yeah. about her, you know, to, you know, questioning her life choices to then being like in a positive way, sort of saying like, well, might as well make the most of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a very interesting, odd movie with a really compelling, yeah, Kyo performance. You should check it out if yeah, you liked it. Yeah, follows, you know? yeah. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week you'll hear tales of mythic Irish gods, Arthurian knights, or Norse Vikings. There is folklore from Ireland and around the world, and even historical legends like Brian Baru and Grainne Whale. Whether from poetry or prose, lyric or legend, if there is a good story at the heart of it, you'll find it here. I'm Kevin C. Olihan. I'm your host and fireside bard. With over 150 episodes and rising, there has never been a better time to join us by the fireside. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus VAT per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Yeah, do you want to hit the lodge? So Riley Cleo plays Grace Marshall, the sole survivor of a cult's mass suicide, soon to be married to Richard, played by Richard Armitage, who she met while he was writing a book about the cult. She is despised by Richard's two children, Aidan, played by Jaden Martell from It, and Mia, played by Liam McHugh, as they blame her and the impending marriage for pushing their, mo- their mother, Laura, played by, very briefly by Alicia Sil- Silverstone, to suicide. Uh, Richard leaves Grace with the two children at the family's winter lodge in the hope they will bond, but the children's cruel games and Grace's traumatic past threaten to break the icy peace. Or is there something more happening at the lodge? Repent and you will find salvation. Things are very uncomfortable between us, and we're stuck in a house together. What is this? The power's out. Where are my things? It makes no sense. What? I heard something. 
Repent. Repent your sins. Yeah, this seems like a very physically and emotionally difficult role for anyone to play. Like, never yeah. mind, like, uh, someone as experienced with emotionally difficult roles as Riley Kyo obviously is. It's one of those parts that really seems like you can't just leave it all behind you. Like, I remember, like, people, someone asked um, Tony Collette about her role in Hereditary and whether it was difficult to, you know, uh, to not take her work home with her. And she's like, it's just acting, <laughs> uh, which, you know, uh, is true for certain actors, not so true for others. And I think with this one, it's like, oh, this seems this seems way too tough. Yeah, for sure. For a lot of for a lot of people, and I'm glad Riley Keough got to do it because she's unreal. Yeah, what do you think of the movie? It it's fucking bleak. Jesus, it feels it it feels like a brick in the it? small of the back. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, it's yeah. so good. But I I don't think I'll be watching it for a very long time afterwards. I'm not usually like a fan of psychological horror in general because if it's kind of it's sometimes if it's bad or even if it's good, it can be kind of like wishy washy, and the ending can be kind of disappointing because it's like oh great, the monster was in their imagination. Woohoo! Give me the action. Tell me the monster is real, and then also have the psychological trauma in there as well, or psychological horror. But the twist in this is such a good example of like the thoughtless cruelty that children are capable of that I don't really mind. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a very like psychologically deep and rich film if you're willing to kind of do the hard work and dig into it. And it is hard work, I think. Uh, even thinking about this movie it makes me feel cold and uh, claustrophobic. And I, I remember a quote from I think it was a game I played years and years ago that says, um, "There is no innocence. There's only very varying degrees of guilt and I think it's it's true of um, this as the children enter this situation with the intention of like harming Grace psychologically to such a degree that she's driven away permanently and they don't really care how she's driven away be it physically or like you know she's been sectioned no. or in a morgue um, it also might be true of Grace uh, as it's never really certain whether she was an innocent victim of her father's cult a willing participant with the caveat of reduced responsibility because she was a child or brainwashing it being some kind of sleeper agent, which in fairness I think is the least, li- least likely option. And like there's this whole thing about her pills that go missing uh, at a certain point in the film and she needs them. And it's not clear if they're like antidepressants or anti-anxiety or even antipsychotic medication. And it's like where the drugs to stop like trauma-induced religious psychosis or just triggers that were put there by the cult for activation at a later date. Or um, or are they just like genuine antidepressants or whatever? And like I said, it's a brutal film, but it's rewarding as well if you're willing to dig deeper into some very ugly subject matter. And I think Kyo gives the impression of Grace having li- as having lived a very difficult life both in and outside of the cult. And I think a lot of other films, not necessarily lazier films, would show old or new signs of self-harm or mention past breakdowns or suicide attempts in exposition to like just give that impression of her of the effect the cult has had on her and I think Kyo manages to communicate that Grace has had like a very trauma-filled life um, just through the way she speaks how she carries herself and the closed-off look that's often on her face and yeah. it's like a, just this performance just built out of psychological scar tissue Absolutely, I yeah. completely agree Just before I talk about Kyo I just wanted to point out that like this movie's from filmmaking duo Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala who are an Austrian Austrian filmmaking duo who mm. made a stir a couple of years ago with this great little thriller called Goodnight Mommy which I just want to bring it up because it shares a lot of DNA with The Lodge mm. in a cool yeah, way yeah. because like it's another movie about growing distrust between children and a parental figure and 
you're never really quite sure until the end of the movie whether it's the kids or the adult who is the antagonist and you're also not quite sure if you're watching something that is rooted in realism or has elements of the supernatural both movies pull that off really really well and don't pull their punches and um oh boy boy does the lodge not pull its punches jesus but it's also like a terrific entry in the sort of like snowy horror genre movie, yeah. you know, alongside stuff like... I was actually thinking of you while I was watching it. Did you feel cosy watching oh, this? Oh, I did, absolutely. I had a like, really? hot, hot, hot coffee kind of on my thing. I was like, ooh. ooh okay, I, I, felt, I felt cold watching it. And I had the heating on. Yeah. No, no, I did. And uh, like reminded me of stuff like The Shining and The Yeah, thing. it reminded me very much of The Shining too, if, but if Wendy Torrance was evil. <laughs> For sure. But The Thing as well, which is one of the very few, like, few funny scenes in The Lodge where Grace shows um, the pre-adolescent and children um, the thing yeah. <laughs> in her care before like halfway through being like yeah is this a bit much and they change to uh, Michael Keaton the Michael Keaton starring film Jack Frost yeah. but it all puts them to sleep like yeah. that's a funny bit yeah yeah I, I, I want to talk about the kind of the intro to Kyo because like we only meet her. We, we, yeah, we she, meet her only, but it's like half an hour. Yeah, like into the 20, 20 yeah. minutes on the dot because like there's a lot of, you, we meet briefly Alicia Silverstone's character and then, you know, we're establishing the kids' relationships and the dad. But like Kyo's character has spoken a lot in during that time. And um, yeah, I love the way they frame the scene of us getting to see her first, um, Franz and Fiala, because, you know, the dad is picking Grace up before they go to the lodge and the kids are in the car. And we, we can't see Grace properly because of the snow and fog that's on the window. Hmm. And when she, you know when she gets into the car, you can only see the back of her head for a few minutes. Like you're in the kids' POV from the back seat. And it's just a really good way of like enhancing the mystery of that character, making her feel more palpable. And like there's a real anticipation of finally getting to see her. I've mentioned like I think you know particularly with like Under the Silver Lake. Yeah, but also throughout Kyo's career and stuff like Hold the Dark and the Girlfriend Experience, I think she's really good at conveying a lot to audiences about the character she inhibits, inhabits while seemingly doing like very little. You know mm. what I mean? Like she can make all this history and internal turmoil just be read on her face. And, you know, as you mentioned, in the way that she moves and talks. I think a great example of that in The Lodge is when we do finally get to see her in close-up in that introductory car scene. And she's like, hi, Aiden. Mm. Hi, Mia. And is being really friendly and smiling. But there's just something behind her eyes or like yeah there's something that's not there yeah the delicate way she like speaks and moves that conveys like this sort of just like great sadness or trauma and that like she's and that she's putting a lot of effort into not revealing that to others Mm. and a lot of the pleasure of the lodge comes from its sort of unexpected twists but I'll just say that like I think she gives a no perfect performance playing a person who before the events of the movie had made great strides to overcome her childhood trauma but over the course of the movie has all that progress jeopardized or like slowly chipped away yeah it's, it's really well done in the movie because like there's so many external forces you know like because the kids are constantly knocking her down her efforts to mm. bond with them like I, I love all the scenes between her and Jade and Martel the male kid is really like they're really prickly you also get the sense that she might be dealing with a bit of guilt because she might have been a factor in the kid's mom's death yeah. you know, there's that bit where Mia is showing um, their old family movies and you see Alicia Silverstone's character like so happy and it cuts to Kyo's face just having this like very emotional reaction to the video and then she just like abruptly leaves the room yeah and um yeah also Alicia Silverstone's character was very religious and there are like Christian paintings and symbols all over the lodge which you can tell in Kyo's performance make Grace very uncomfortable despite her saying they don't and like you see just often like see her just like staring really intensely at like crosses or Mm. like you know the paintings they're bringing back religious kind of repressed memories from her childhood in the christian cult all that's going on already but then like the final straw comes as all their belongings are stolen and including her i think psychiatric medication you know and then it just sends her spiraling and i just think it's a bravura performance because like she perfectly tracks her character's emotional state to the audience and like 
even when Grace does things that seem scary or monstrous, like you manage, to, she is sympathetic. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah, know, and yeah. like uh, not only because the circumstances are so murky, but because I guess because you can feel that darkness in the opening scenes just radiating off Kyo, you know, just like lurking under the surface before kind of growing throughout the movie, despite her character's best efforts efforts to try and like suppress it. Yeah, and um, I I think like her character's descent doesn't feel like abrupt. It's like you said, it feels like something is being chipped away at. For and then sure. all of a sudden the floodwaters rush in. Absolutely. And like, I think her tragic performance gives the movie's shocking ending a bit more emotional weight than it might have had with yeah, a different actress or yeah. like in a lesser movie. Yeah, know? yeah. But um, it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't get over how good it was. I'm confounded as to why I this hasn't been properly released in Ireland yet because uh, I couldn't find it on any streaming service couldn't find it uh, being released on DVD here. Wasn't available to rent on iTunes. I ordered a secondhand DVD from Germany for eight <laughs> euro. Maybe we got lost in the COVID shuffle, and like maybe it's still planning on getting a release here yeah. someday. But um, it's a 2019 movie. Like mm. I don't know. I thought it would have come out by now. Yeah, it's strange. Um, but um, if you can track a copy of it down, it's well worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Go um, in prepared. Absolutely. Yeah. Is Kovac talk about Zola? Go for it. Yeah. So um, this is a biographical sports film about former Italian footballer um, Gianfranco Zola. And no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, Where's he going with this? Basically, in 2015, this woman named Isaiah Zola King posted a 148 tweet thread online about a trip she said she took to Florida with another woman she barely knew that went very south. Mm. And the Twitter thread went viral and led to a follow-up article in Rolling Stone, which interviewed all the parties involved. So it's this kind of black comedy crime film and Taylor Page plays Zola, um, a black waitress and part-time stripper in Detroit who, while working, meets Stephanie Pavarotti-Kyo, a white fellow stripper. And they instantly hit it off. And a few days later, Stephanie proposes they road trip to Florida to strip. And while reluctant to take a hoe trip, as Zola's words, not mine, yeah. <laughs> um, <Stephen>. with, <laughs> with um, someone she just met, she decides to do it. And, uh, yeah, joining him on the trip is Stephanie's uh, boyfriend, Derek, who is played by Nicholas Braun, you know, cousin Greg in succession, (laughs) and a man who Stephanie says is her roommate and is credited under X in the film as played by the great Common Domingo. However, it's only after they arrive in Florida that uh, Zola learns that Stephanie is a prostitute, X is her pimp, and that Zola is being manipulated into becoming involved in their prostitution racket. Ah. And the movie follows Zola over a couple of days in Florida trying to navigate the situation as a bunch of chaos unfolds around her. Hey, last month I went dancing at this cute spot in Florida where my roommate's girl made like five Gs a night. My roommate just told me that he going out there tomorrow and he asked me if I had any friends that want to make some money and you the first bitch I thought of. Damn, bitch. We just met yesterday and you already trying to take whole trips together? When we leave in. Be ready by two. Yeah, it might be the first movie ever inspired by a Twitter thread. Though the Rolling Stone article, which the film is based on, that you know, followed up on those tweets about the trip and interviewed some of the parties involved, did notice some inconsistencies in her account. And um, Zola has admitted to embellishing some of the more sensational details. And it should be said, too, that the woman who Roddy Kyo's character is based on insists she never prostituted herself. Mm-hmm. That said, the Rolling Stone article does say that many of the details in Zola's account do line up. And the movie does that thing where it's like, most of what follows is true. <laughs> and... Changes all the characters' names except Zola, but uh, I just want to say that in case people, you know, will be watching the movie and thinking like how much of it is real or not. And um, if I'm talking about people in the movie, I'm just saying as they are presented in the film. Mm. You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, I've seen this twice now. I think it's really entertaining, hilarious, at times really tense. 
whether or not it's 100% true, just the story Zola Toad is so good. <laughs> and the movie adds to it by framing and presenting it in a unique way. Like it's written by Jeremy O'Harris and Junzika Bravo. Bravo also directed the movie. And I was trying to sum up the aesthetic of the movie, which is shot on gorgeous kind of grainy film and has all these like really colorful characters stylishly dressed but just drenched in really sharp Florida sun or neon club lights <laughs> by night and um, I read a lot of great article on this website called The Face which compared the movie Zola with other Florida set movies like Spring Breakers and Waves calling the movement Tampacore <laughs> and, uh, and I have some quotes here stylistically Tampacore movies depict a dream like surrealism in both Zola and Spring Breakers the dream of having a good time in Florida turns into a nightmare and the phantasmagoric Florida vibe is what makes Tampacore visually distinct and special it's got beach bums but under bisexual lighting the vibe is Girls Gone Wild if Girls Gone Wild had premiered at Sundance <laughs> uh, great line yeah I actually haven't seen Waves but I've seen Spring Breakers and I, I do think it shares Spring Break forever <laughs> I'm going to talk about that performance in relation to Roddy Keough's character but um, yeah they definitely share DNA Zola and Spring Breakers but I think what makes Zola a little different is that it more explicitly takes place in a digital age mm. you know and um, it does cool things like incorporating the real life tweets by Zola as narration in the film or as you know, fourth wall breaks to kind of punctuate certain events. And it's re- anytime it happens it's really cool also anytime the movie directly quotes or takes a moment from the original Twitter thread, you just hear a tweet sound yeah. in the back and it kind of gives the movie a weird kind of rhythm. Yeah, just the whole movie has this kind of vibe of going out for cocktails on a sunny weekend afternoon with your mates and hearing a wild story from one of them about their shenanigans mm-hmm. the night before. But I also think like Bravo and Harris take the events of the movie seriously and like parts of it are very scary and tense. Also, they kind of use Zola's story to explore a couple of heavy topics, you know, like race in America, cultural appropriation, the positives and negatives of mm-hmm. sex work and huge part of what makes the movie great is just this ensemble cast playing these really interesting characters. Like you got Taylor Page as Zola who just spends a lot of the movie watching madness unfold and pulling the most like expressive, incredulous faces while giving this like really sharp narration. Or you got like Nicholas Braun who's this like you know, pathetic, unintelligent, but kind of lovable, long-suffering boyfriend to Kyo Stephanie, who has a chin-strap beard and wants to go viral making jackass videos. Or you have Coman Domingo's pimp, who most of the time speaks in this, like, deep, smooth kind of American twang, but when stressed or threatening, someone just breaks into this thick Nigerian accent, <laughs> um, which is great. <laughs> but I think Kyo might leave the biggest impression as Stephanie, um, this white woman who, in what's a real testament to Kyo's Star Wattage, he actually managed to believe is charismatic enough to convince this black woman to drop everything and go traveling with her, despite the obvious red flag that she speaks in this, like, awful, very heavy black scent. Okay. Uh, one which I would say rivals James Franco in Spring Breakers <laughs> or um, Gary Oldman in True Romance. <laughs> but over the course of the movie, any affection Zola had once for Stephanie or any charm Stephanie gave off at first quickly dissipates. Like, it's not a huge spoiler but there's a there's a bit where Zola has a chance to leave Stephanie after she finds out about Stephanie and X's plan and X had threatened her to stay but like had left her alone with Stephanie and she can go and Zola's like rightly pissed off at her in the moment and Stephanie starts crying and is like I didn't mean to bring you into this I didn't know it was going to go down like this I'm scared he knows where I live he knows where my baby lives and it's a really powerful scene that Kyo kills and it convinces Zola to stay and you actually want to believe Stephanie in the moment but soon after that you find out that like it's not true and that her and X are happily in business together <laughs> but not only that but like the pair have manipulated other dancers into becoming involved in their prostitution racket before and just like the character as depicted in the film is seen just like lying to the end to get what she wants yeah. or kind of cover herself like the movie begins with the character of Zola saying like 
as the real life person did in her tweets like you want to hear a story about me, how me and this bitch fell out it's kind of long but it's full of suspense and the movie is mostly told from her perspective but there's a brief vignette in the middle of the movie where the movie gives you Stephanie's perspective yeah. on events which seem a little suspect because like Kyo narrates the segment and it begins with her saying you want to hear a story about how me and this bitch fell out it's long but I'm gonna speed it up <laughs> and um, which is funny but Stephanie claims it was actually Zola that was the one who was prostituting herself and that Zola used Stephanie's picture to advertise her services because nobody was calling her and she says that Zola only made one dollar on the night oh dear <laughs> which uh don't believe it's yeah. true but um yeah I just think Kyo's performance is so fearless and I don't think a lot of actresses of her stature would take on a role in a movie with this subject matter where you have to be often in a state of undress and play this basically irredeemable villain who exclusively speaks in an offensive accent <laughs> and says or does things that earn this movie a kind of rare nowadays 18s writing yeah. when it came out in cinemas in Ireland and like maybe a Jennifer Lawrence or Scar Joe would do one maybe two of those things <laughs> but all of them I have my doubts and um, yeah I just love how kind of impressive Kyo is with her image and you know I just feel like kind of if the role or the project is interesting enough to her she'll show up and give 110% as she does in Zola I think my one caveat about the movie is that I think its ending is very abrupt, but aside from that, like, I really like it. And I think with its sort of, like, loose plot and unconventional lead characters and the way it gives you kind of a glimpse into a world you might not have seen on screen before, it almost feels like kind of a new Hollywood movie, like, from the 70s, but sort of put into the digital age. Right, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, really cool movie. Okay, yeah. Do you want to talk about Devil All the Time? Sure. Very I- curious what you think of this, because I think this movie's great. Okay. I disagree. Okay, cool. <laughs> I disagree, Stephen. I disagree. Uh, Riley Keough plays Sandy Bodecker, the husband of serial killer photographer Carl Henderson, played by Jason Clark, and the sister of corrupt Sheriff Lee Bodecker, played by Sebastian Stan. Their intertwined stories of sadistic murder and small-town corruption collides with Arvin Russell's, Tom Holland, quest for revenge in the backwoods of Knock'em Stiff, Ohio. When evil's gone the body grows weak. The spirit grows You're snoozing through furling. I don't like this gospel shit. You know, we did him a favor. He was just going to get shot up and killed in Vietnam, anyways. God damn it. He wasn't nothing but another model. I told you I don't like this anymore. Ain't it fair if I hate the way some of them cry? Well, not that you'd appreciate it, but tears make for a good photograph. What Sandy didn't understand was that to his way of thinking, this was the one true religion. Only in the presence of death could he feel the presence of something like God. So I feel like the sections of the film with Sandy, Carl and Lee could be their own film, just as Arvin's section could be their own film. Uh, admittedly the film is an adaptation of a book by Donald Ray Pollock who also narrates the film I don't think the film would lose much by separating the two stories into basically two separate films essentially Mm. I don't know what I expected out of this I guess I expected some kind of you know backwoods revenge thriller that was very gory or something essentially I expected more than what I got I'm not really sure the kind of slick commercial sheen Netflix seems to apply to nearly all the films it distributes really fits with the grungy bloody aesthetics and themes of the devil all the time like there's the bit where like Jason Clark is like struggling with a man who, whose uh, genitals he's mutilated uh, It's in this brief little scene and it, but it's just lit in golden air sunlight yeah I don't think of the movie as being particularly glossy but now I have to go back and yeah maybe not but I don't know it just feels like it should have more 
grit Great, to yeah. it in ter- just in terms of like the actual film itself not necessarily that not, maybe it was shot, shot in film you think yeah, that, yeah 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 or even just you know a little little bit of editing trickery here yeah, here sure. there you like no film with the vibes and story of a backwoods revenge thriller should look like an ad for miller beer essentially <laughs> um i think sandy sandy's riley kyo's character's story is one of a woman trapped in a marriage that has festered from like very passionate and romantic to loveless and paranoid and but i do think a lot is left out because um, we only ever really see Sandy and Carl briefly in the beginning of their journey, journey and then at the, kind of at the very end of it. Like, there's a little yeah. one or two things. That's why I didn't watch it for this, because I, I knew she sort of had the smaller role. In the yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. And um, I think the climactic shootout that involves Lee and Arvin is um, more kind of thematically consistent and reflexive than anything to do with Sandy and Carl. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm happy this movie was made, and I think people other than me such as yourself, have found and will find a lot to enjoy in it. But I expected more from a backwoods thriller with such a stacked cast and seeing Marvel stars doing something different for a change. But maybe that's the issue. Seeing two like clean-cut superheroes played by people like Holland and Stan lowering themselves into the like the claustrophobic world of claustrophobic world even of these grimy independent thrillers made by Antonio Campos and his his friends essentially you know there's like piercing and other stuff like that that are populated by morally rotten marble mouthed malcontents and I think it needs like a James Badge Dale or something you know Holland is a bit of a weak link I'll say that I think Stan is uh, quite a comedian I thought he was really good in the movie yeah I don't know I'm still not certain about him because I think he's very good in uh, Logan Lucky. I think he's brilliant in that little thing, little bit he has. And I'm watching Pam and Tommy right now, and he's quite good. Okay, yeah, yeah. And Great Destroyer and a lot of other movies. Seen Destroyer? He's the the guy she falls in love with when undercover. Oh yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, maybe maybe he is good. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think. Yeah, I think Tom Holland is like. Oh, he's good at playing Spider-Man. He's not good at much else though. But Panson though. Yeah, he's it's the y'all delusions that lead yeah. you to sin. <laughs> I'm never delusions. I'm never certain. I was never certain if he was good or bad, oh, and I think great. that's that's what and that's what makes him great. Yeah, yeah. and Harry Malling, mm. poor spiders over his head. Yeah, okay. yeah. What I love about this movie, um, also on top of the fact that like, I love that all our kind of bright stars of tomorrow, like. I don't know, Tom Holland, Robert Pattinson, Eliza Scanlon. Eliza Scanlon, yeah. Eliza Scanlon. Eliza! <laughs> like, uh, Bill Skarsgård, Emily mm. Bennett, all those people that it's like, them actually doing like kind of an old school 90s yeah, gritty crime yeah, thriller. Yeah. I really like. And I love how all the vignettes do sort of thematically link up on this idea of sort of like religious obsession, which I think makes it sort of a companion piece to, weirdly, The Lodge. I guess, maybe, yeah. yeah. I don't think there's a whole lot of religious obsession in... Um uh, Sandy and Carl's kind of journey. I think he thinks of himself as God. Yeah, that's yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's, but yeah. It, it is the one that's a bit of looser. Yeah, of yeah, the yeah, thing. yeah. But yeah, but he does have a line where he mentions talks about that. But um, yeah, I just think it's a really kind of like cool, gnarly, dark thriller. With I think I think it, people said it's like, what's the word? Kind of like oppressively depressing. Mm. I thought there was bits of that were like darkly comic, particularly Pattinson and Melling and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and like the, the, there's a bit in it that you mentioned to me last week before I wa- or two weeks ago before I watched it with Eliza Scanlon that is like gallows humor, cruel. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and if you explain it to someone why you think it works, they'd be like, "You're a lunatic." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah do you, you think psychopath? Yeah, but um, no, I like that movie. I don't know. It's got yeah. some. Yeah, I don't. I'm know. in the minority though. People aren't that into it. Mm, yeah, yeah. Maybe I need to rewatch it, but uh, not anytime soon. 
But yeah, just on upcoming projects for Kyo, she seems to be going all in on Amazon Prime Video, appearing in two of their (laughs) upcoming series. Um, Firstly, um, she's... The Lord of the Rings, the Ring of Power. This will delight you. Firstly, she's appearing in a supporting role in a thriller drama series called The Terminal List, starring Chris Pratt. (laughs) Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, However, I think the more interesting sounding project is the second series called Daisy Jones and the Six, which will follow a rock band in the 70s from their rise in the L.A music scene to becoming one of the most legendary bands in the world and explores the reason behind their split at the height of their success and Bradley Kill will play the lead character um, with the show to be presented in a documentary style even though the band and story are fictional mm. like it's based on a novel but, uh, which I think actually sounds kind of cool yeah sounds interesting um, hopefully though she's not saying goodbye to cinema forever fingers crossed please yeah. Yeah, rate and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Email I know the facepod at gmail.com. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to Shannon Fernandez for editing and helping out running our socials. If you love the show, please consider donating five euro a month uh, to us through Headstuff Plus, where you can find ex- special exclusive bonus episodes. We have multiple available now, including in our Leading Legend series, focusing on A-listers like Brad Pitt, Denzel Washington, Jody Foster, and there'll be more uh, coming up soon. Oh, yeah. Um, that we're going to record right now. <laughs> and, um, Andrew, uh, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. And um, you can also check me out at joe.e where I write about news and the odd entertainment story. See you later, Cinefoss. Bye-bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. 